Okay, turn over to Acts chapter 10. And we will look at verses 9 through 23 today. This is the second half of the twin vision given for uh, the going forth of the gospel to the nations and to Cornelius. Acts 10, 9 through 23. Let's pray. O Lord, we praise you today because we are here as one body, united in one vine, grafted in by your mercy and loving kindness. O Lord, may we not be like those in the wilderness who rebelled. Let us not neglect so great a salvation as you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Create in us a hunger and a thirst for your word and satisfy us with the living word. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand for the reading of the word. Acts 10, 9 through 23. The story follows the sending of the men from Cornelius to uh, fetch Peter from Joppa uh, to Caesarea. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean, that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason of your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I don't want to make you feel old, but most of you remember that. It was the year before I was born, 1987. These were words from President Reagan in his famous Berlin Wall speech. Um, at the time, Germany was divided between West and East Germany. And this is an oversimplification, but Germany was under the oppressive communist government of the USSR. And West Germany was free, a capitalist nation. And ever since the division that took place after World War II, um, people were fleeing East Germany for West Germany, essentially. 
And as a result, the Soviet government created various blockades and in the 60s built this wall to prevent people from going into West Germany. In the 80s, uh, the USSR was weakening and in 1889, the Berlin Wall fell and in 1890, East and West Germany were united into a single country. In a similar way, the Lord is telling Peter in this passage, I am tearing down this wall. It's time for the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile to come down. It's time for the unification of these two men into a single man. This is one of the most glorious aspects of the new covenant. We Gentiles are full members of the holy nation. We, we don't need to climb a wall at night and risk death or tunnel under a wall to enter into the holy nation. The dividing wall is crumbled. God has seen fit to unify men and women from all the nations into a single holy nation. The most prominent feature of this text is, of course, Peter's vision. We'll look, begin looking there. Peter's vision last week we studied and saw that this is a, a twin vision. The first half was to, to Cornelius, uh, a Gentile a centurion, preparing him to receive the gospel and to call for Peter to come preach the gospel. Um, and in this week's passage, we study kind of the second of the twin visions, Peter's vision, preparing him to bring the gospel to Cornelius, to the nations. As Daryl Bach said, this uh, whole thing is coordinated by God or even choreographed by God. Jesus here is guiding the advance of his church. Uh, Cornelius had sent these men to fetch Peter in Joppa. He lives north in Caesarea, 31 miles away. And as they're traveling, Peter's having his vision. This is coordinated. This is choreographed by the Lord Jesus. Palestinian roofs were flat, were part of the living space, and actually, if there was a, an awning of some kind in the summer, they were actually a cooler place to spend time. So Peter went up to pray, seeking seclusion to pray, as, as Jesus did. And while praying, he became hungry. And while someone was preparing his food, he fell into a trance. Um, the word translated trance carries the idea of an altered psychological state. It was uh, an ecstatic vision. In the vision, he looked up into the sky. The word heavens means sky in this context. And the sky opened up in a great vessel, a sheet, much like the sail of a ship, descended, filled with all kinds of animals. Animals, reptiles, and birds of the air, it says. And a voice, the voice of the Lord, perhaps the Lord Jesus, called out to him, You're hungry, Peter. Kill and eat. We don't know exactly what animals were in the sheet, but we can safely assume based on Peter's reaction, at least some of them were ceremonially unclean animals. Unclean by the law of Moses. Um, in Leviticus 11, we read of the types of animals God permitted Israel to eat and the ones he didn't. Many of those unclean animals were birds and reptiles. God said even here in Leviticus 11, if you eat or even touch the carcass of one of these animals, you are defiled, unclean, until evening. He even said, 
you shall regard them as detestable. Detestable. Those are detestable animals. Now, I have to love Peter. He's a man of conviction, if nothing else. He Maybe not much for subtlety or nuance, but he's a man of conviction. Remember when Jesus told him that he would die, Peter said, no, no, no. The kingdom of God will come on earth and you will reign. You know, that was the sentiment. But that was the eschatology he had been raised in. He was a man of conviction. And we can sympathize. We're torn when we encounter changes in our own theological paradigms. I mean, when we first encounter the gospel, what a radical shift, or the doctrines of grace, or covenant theology, any of these major paradigm shifts, we're torn. We wonder, am I doing the right thing by leaving what I once knew and going to something different? We can sympathize. Some people are pretty hard on this, on Peter here, but I admire his conviction and, and he steadfastly is committed to doing the right thing. He's trying to do the will of the Lord. Um, he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. God's response is, Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. So the Lord here, as he has always been with Peter, is very patient. He was patient and gracious in giving him threefold confirmation of the revelation here. Just as Peter had denied the Lord three times and the Lord affirmed him three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Even here now, he gives him three opportunities to come to an understanding. He's very patient. Each The vision happened three times. The words I want to hone in on here are his Peter's words. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean in verse 14. Common or unclean. The words common and unclean are really synonymous in this context. Common doesn't just mean ordinary. It actually means profane. I have never eaten anything that's profane or unclean. You can see why this is such a major paradigm shift for Peter. God is enacting a change, a formal covenantal change here. Um, Jesus had actually declared all foods clean already, which is recorded in Mark chapter 7, where he's speaking to the Pharisees in, in verse 18. He says, Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then there's an editorial comment, thus he declared all foods clean. But we have to remember, it took time for these things to to coalesce in the minds and hearts of the disciples. And Mark's gospel, we have to remember, is not like journal entries from that moment in time. It's looking back. That's why there's this editorial comment. He understands what Jesus did there. And in fact, Mark is thought to be Peter's perspective on uh, the, the gospel. The food laws and other ceremonial laws are tied directly to the relationship of Jewish, the Jewish nation to the Gentiles, and the concepts of profane and unclean extend beyond just food. Um, it was these ceremonial food laws, laws of circumcision, um, that are tied directly to the relation. Uh, that, excuse me, but. They were these 
ceremonial laws were the building blocks of the wall, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. This is what divided them in large part. We see that in Ephesians 2, uh, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, uh, where it says, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. See, that's how he tore down the wall, is tearing down the ordinances. And it's not as though the wall was bad, the wall was good, the wall was God's plan, but it was a temporary wall. It served a temporary purpose. If we look at Leviticus 11, we read verses 43 through 45. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I, the Lord, and the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy as I am holy. So these holiness laws were really to consecrate the nation of Israel from the nations around them. That was, in large measure, their purpose. They they were to be set apart, different, distinct, sanctified, holy. They were not to defile themselves with the nations or with their idols, And the ceremonial food laws represented that. So ceremonial food laws and circumcision preached the consecration of the covenant people of God. And the Gentiles were not entirely excluded from this paradigm. They could convert. They could become proselytites. They could become circumcised, adhere to the food laws, and essentially become Jews, in, in essence. They could convert... Um, And even in the temple, provision was made for Gentiles. There was the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't enter into the sanctuary, but provision was made. They could be, uh, this is what Cornelius was, really, they could be Israel adjacent. They could get close. But they were separated. They could not enter the sanctuary. And just like some foods were considered unclean, profane, detestable, so too were the nations. Um, Jesus, even shockingly in the Gospels a couple of times, calls them dogs. You remember those instances? He also commands his disciples because his purpose was to come to Israel. He says that a number of times. He commands his disciples early on not to go out to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Likewise, again, in Ephesians 2, we we read of the Gentile state prior to Christ. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I bring this up in part because I've read some opinions that said basically Peter was primarily concerned with the traditions of men, uh, which I'm sure is the case. He had influences that were not biblical, but clearly separation was, was woven into the fabric of the Mosaic Covenant. It's not just tradition. God is making a paradigm shift in the New Covenant. 
So God is saying to Peter, no longer consider the Gentiles profane. No longer consider them defiling. It's time to tear down the wall. It's time to to unify the nations. And we know that's what his vision meant, um, because in verse 28 of chapter 10, speaking to Cornelius and the others, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So this is not just about food. This is about the nations. Christ is so gentle, so patient with his church. Uh, Of course, the dividing wall with the ordinances, the food laws, the the divide between Gentile and Jew uh, were all done away with objectively at the cross. But now, at this point in Acts, he's helping his church to see and apply those truths over the course of time. I want to take a few minutes to see how Christ removes the barrier here. And actually, if you have your hymnals, turn to page 859. And as you're turning there, there's a trend these days and in these parts uh, where Christians are becoming Torah observant. You've observed this phenomenon. And there's also a movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement, um, which says we've lost sight of the Hebrew roots of Christianity and have been influenced by pagan philosophy. We need to go back to the Hebrew roots. So how do we do that? We become Torah observant. We observe the food laws, the feasts. Um, and I just kind of want to tell them, and I have told some of them, read Acts chapter 10. I, I don't understand. Why would we want to rebuild the wall? Why we would want to throw away our liberty that has been granted to us. Why we would cling to shadows when we have the substance. Why we would not eat bacon if we can eat bacon. Mm. That's how you be seeker sensitive. You you preach bacon. (laughs) But let's just plunge into some, some hearty covenant theology here. In Christ. The Mosaic civil and ceremonial laws have been abrogated. And these, uh, the reason I had you turn is it's hard to hear these. Page uh, 859. And we're going to look at, it's Westminster Confession 19, verse, uh, numbers 3 and 4, sections 3 and 4. So it says, besides this law, commonly called the moral law, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So that's speaking to the ceremonial law there, that it's been done away with, abrogated. And then to the civic uh, laws of the nation of Israel. Number four, to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So there the civil laws have been abrogated with the passing away of the nation state of Israel. So what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 10 is this radical shift of, in paradigm. We're seeing 
the new covenant in Christ breaking into the world and changing the way people are understanding how they relate to God. When thinking about the newness of the new covenant, we can make the mistake easily that, that the old covenant is the Old Testament, and that's not true. The old covenant and the Old Testament are, are different. Um, the covenant of Abraham, for example, and the covenant with David are ongoing covenants. The moral law of God persists. Um, specifically, what is passed away with the coming of the new covenant is the Mosaic covenant. And we can read about this in Hebrews chapter 8. Um, Hebrews 8, nine, 6 through 9. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah this is the key verse for seeing that this is the mosaic covenant specifically passing away verse 9 not like the covenant i made with their fathers which covenant? Abraham, David. He says, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's the Mosaic covenant that passes away with the entrance of the new covenant. All that to say that the, the barrier of entry for, to, into the holy nation of God it, it is not circumcision, it's not food laws, it's not ethnicity, it's Christ. We saw a few months ago, going through Galatians, Paul made such a big deal of this. Um, is that It's faith in Christ that is the barrier to entry into the new covenant community. Galatians 3.29 And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul echoes this in Romans 2.28 and 29 For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So, the Lord here is the purifier. Christ is the purifier, the cleanser. His blood has washed clean that which was defiled and unholy, uh, both culinarily and ethnically, if you will. Uh, culinarily, if you <laughs> I can think of a better word. I'm sure there is one. But food laws, um, 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, Paul decries those people who, he says, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And then that which was common and profane, un uncircumcised, um, the nations God has made clean in Christ. Again, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's cleansed that which was defiled. 
which leads us really to the second half of this story. Um, table fellowship and the gospel are things that go hand in hand. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the sacraments is a meal. We remember the story of Peter in Galatians when he sat down at the table with the Gentiles at Antioch and and until men from Jerusalem arrived before he was afraid of the circumcision party because they weren't there, he was sitting with them, eating with them. But when they arrived, he he, he vacated. He, He secluded himself with these other men, just Jewish men. And what does Paul have to say about that? Remember, Paul rebuked him and he and he said, that is not in step with the gospel. Table fellowship is a gospel issue. That is not in step with the gospel. When you think of the gospel, what part does the unity of the people of God play in your mind? When you hear the word gospel. And to Paul, it's clearly a significant part of the gospel. We tend to focus our attention primarily on the forgiveness of sins, which naturally we should. But the New Testament picture of the gospel is, is so much more grand. As somebody asked me, I think it was yesterday, um, is salvation the ultimate goal of man? Sometimes we treat it like it is, but salvation is a means to an end. The ultimate goal of man is communion with God. Salvation is a means to that end. So the glory of the gospel is that he's creating for himself a people, a holy nation. Again, 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Ephesians 4.4-6, 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Uh, This week has been exhausting for me. Uh, Going to Presbytery, Cohen said this morning, you preach two sermons, you're going to be exhausted. <laughs> Perceptive little fellow. It's true. But I'm also excited and energized by this week. First, I got to worship with my brothers and sisters from, from Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, at Presbytery. This morning, I get to worship with my dear local body. And this afternoon, I get to sing Christ's praises with brothers and sisters from here, Grand Junction, Montrose, and then we get to share in table fellowship with the saints. Now, I, will be, I, I will be so tired by the end of today. And it will be difficult to wrangle my kids. I'm socially awkward. I don't like uncomfortable social, social situations. And in my flesh, I'd rather stay home and watch fishing videos on YouTube, which I will do tomorrow. <laughs> But I'm excited to wrestle my flesh to the ground today and endure exhaustion because of this gospel. Because this is who we are. The church is not just a place we go to have our individual spiritual needs met. The church is what we are. 
We are the assembly of the saints, called out from the nations of the world as a single united body. These tiny, feeble gatherings, even in our own local gathering, preach to us the glories of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. They are microcosms of glory. You understand that's what we're doing here when we meet. You know the song, well, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. So these gatherings make me long for the day when we will be united before the throne of God. When we'll be so enraptured with God's glory, when our aches and pains are gone, when preachers aren't boring, when our sin is absent and we're no longer bored with the truths of God, when we can sing in ten-part harmony among the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, and we actually maybe might have a decent singing voice, when we can stand shoulder to shoulder with Jim DeBerg and Stan Badgett, except for they'll be way farther up toward the throne than I will. We can sing with, with Abraham and Augustine and the saints from Africa who are there because of Jan's work and my great-grandkids and the great-grandkids of, of those who are underground Christians now in, in North Korea. I, I just long for us to see the role we play in this grand, corporate, global, international operation of reconciliation. And that, and that we just plunge headlong into it and, and laying aside every weight of encumbrance. And this is the purpose of our very lives. It is so big and, and exhilarating and exciting. And the story of these, the arrival of these men from Cornelius may seem kind of like transitional details, but if we look carefully, it preaches these same realities to us. Um, once again, we see the choreographic mastery of God. Peter, pondering the strange vision he just seen, receives revelation from the Spirit that elucidates its meaning for him, um, just as these men arrive. And in verses 19 and 20, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, and go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And we can assume these men were Gentiles sent from Cornelius. Um, and that assumption is confirmed by what the Holy Spirit says, accompany them without hesitation. Why would Peter have hesitation unless they were Gentiles? Accompany them without hesitation. And here we see Peter responds in step with the gospel. So he, Peter, Jewish as can be, invited them, Gentiles, to be his guests. Radical shift in paradigm. Every October 3rd since 1990, is German Unity Day. It's the day Germans celebrate the unification of East and West Germany. Every day since the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ has been Unity Day. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. May we consider ourselves privileged to join in the celebration. Amen.